So um, I don't know about you. Um, I don't know if you like to uh, spend any time uh, spend or waste. Perhaps you might view it as wasting time, um, procrastinating online, looking at translation fails. I definitely have. Uh, sometimes I feel like you just need a little bit of light relief. Um, so I'm going to pop some, there'll be some pictures that come up on the screen. Um, and uh, if we can have the, the next one up, that'd be great. So um, this is uh, one, of, one of my favorites. Um, so either this sign is informing us uh, that we have uh, some very, very slow moving children. Um, Perhaps it was a little bit too hot for them to be playing outside, so they're playing very, very slowly. Um, or perhaps we are being told to go slowly to keep the children who are playing safe. I'll let you decide which one it is. If we can have the next picture up. Um, this one I, I really enjoy. I don't know how clean you like your shower. Um, but I, I've never personally taken a vacuum cleaner into the shower with me. Um, but I did figure out what this one means. Does anyone, anyone want to shout out what they think they might be talking about? Yes, the extractor fan. If we can have the next picture up, please. Now, this one, I'll let you read it for a moment. This might terrify the parents in the room. Um, as you spend, spend time telling your children not to run by the pool, this sign seems to be implying that despite your best efforts, your children are required to run by the pool or they will be kicked out, which seems a little bit dangerous to me. Uh, perhaps something has been missed out. Perhaps they meant uh, if you disobey the regulations, uh, you will be removed. Um, don't know if you agree with that. Uh, if we have the next one up, I'm aware, I'm aware that there are a few golfers in the room, uh, a few people that play golf. Uh, perhaps this is a, a title that you would, you'd like to aspire to. Uh, you'd like to be known as someone who is uh, the king of achieving par. Or perhaps they are uh, letting you know where you should uh, leave your car um, when you uh, need to park it. Uh, and one more, last one. And I think this one probably makes sense if you can see the context around the picture. I imagine that rather than encouraging us not to drink at all, uh, it is in fact informing us that the water in, I, I assume there's a fountain or a stream, a tap or a water feature nearby. It's informing us that that particular source of water is not suitable for drinking but without the proper context all this sign seems to do is warn us of the dangers of drinking anything at all as abby said i'm kicking off a new sermon series today we're going to be spending the next few weeks few Sundays diving into the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of seen as Jesus' manifesto, his big theological statement beyond his actions and his life. Some people describe it as a blueprint on the way in which God intends us to live. And over the course of the sermon series, we're going to be looking at key passages within the Sermon on the Mount to tease out a way of living that sets us apart. 
And hopefully this is a helpful way for us to think about discipleship, what it means to be disciples of Jesus. The word disciple at its root means a follower or a pupil. And I think actually we're hoping to go beyond that because God has done more than that for us. We're not just called to follow God, to learn from God, but God has called us his people, his children, and welcomed us into his kingdom. So we're not just looking at what it means to be followers and pupils, but what it means to be God's children, God's kingdom people. How we are to live differently in a way that not only embodies that kingdom in the here and now, but also draws others into God's family and transforms the world around us. Now, much like that last picture, I think that context is really important to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Without the context, we could misunderstand the meaning of it. I sometimes like to think of this a little bit like what we see on TV. Now, for me, shows nowadays seem to have a vastly different threshold for swearing, for nudity, for those kind of things than they did when I was growing up. And I'm sure that some people here with slightly longer memories than me could educate me on the difference between, say, the previous decades... 60s, 70s, 80s, and what I'm aware of, which is the noughties and the 90s. So hopefully today I'm going to tee us up for the rest of the sermon series, and I'm going to cover four things to try and give us a little bit of context to help us out over the coming weeks. Firstly, we need to remember that Jesus was born and raised as a Jew in a particular period of Judaism. Now, this is generally referred to as Second Temple, due to the fact that it was the Second Temple that had been built in Jerusalem, or First Century Judaism, given the fact that it was in the first century. Jesus and the New Testament authors would have seen themselves as part of the grand story of God's creation, working through from Genesis all the way up to where they were in time. And they would have seen them as part, themselves as part of God's redeeming work in the world. Now, throughout Scripture, through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is shown to be faithful. And the peace known in relationship with God at the beginning of creation, if we go back to the Garden of Eden before they ate the fruit, will be known again when God completes his restoration of creation. Now, that restoration was accomplished when Jesus died and rose again. And it will be completed when Jesus returns. Now, the direct context of Second Temple Judaism places us in the midst of what is known as apocalyptic wisdom literature. This might seem like a grand title for something, but essentially it amounts to wisdom in the form of sayings, proverbs and stories on how to live ethically wiseless wisely wiseless it's not the right one wisely um, sometimes i live a bit wiseless but uh, and virtuously according to what god tells us this is what jewish authors around jesus time were writing 
We know of some of it. We're quite familiar with the Proverbs in the Old Testament. But there are other writings from around that time that were on a similar theme. There were a bunch of scrolls that were found in the, in the desert, in the caves at a place called Qumran. They're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these fit into this type of literature. They're sayings on how to live well. And the Sermon on the Mount would have been written against this backdrop the backdrop of scripture, of God's faithfulness and the restorative work, and also kind of the wisdom sayings. And knowing this background can help give a bit of insight into how the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is designed to display God's restorative kingdom and is given to those who have ears to hear and build their lives upon Jesus' teaching. Now, the second thing on a similar vein that we need to hold in mind is what's known as the Greco-Roman virtue tradition. Now, Greco-Roman quite simply means Greek and Roman. And Palestine, as it was known at the time, Judea, Palestine, would have been occupied by the Greeks and then the Romans for a long time before Jesus came around, for about 300 years. So, their whole kind of culture would have been infiltrated and influenced by Greek and Roman culture, by their occupiers. And one way that I think about this is how in the UK we seem to have been influenced by a lot of American traditions. You might think about trick-or-treating at Halloween. I don't think that was much of a thing when I was younger, but it seems to be a massive thing now. And the virtue tradition was a school of Greek philosophy concerned with how to achieve a happy, or better yet, a content life. A life that is both satisfied and meaningful. And there are three key questions in this school of thought. Who are we? Who ought we to become? And how do we get there? So that's who are we? What ought we to become? And how do we get there? And for these philosophers, how we act flows out of who we are. You cannot fix the actions properly without fixing the person. One's desires and emotions need to be in harmony with what one knows to be right. Your reason, your thoughts, and your passion, your emotions are not in conflict when you are a truly virtuous person. So these are the first two things that we need to think about. We need to think about the cultural backdrop of the Jewish wisdom literature, Jesus' Jewish heritage, telling us how to live in accordance with God's revelation, ethics, and wisdom. And also the Greek-Roman virtue tradition, telling us how to live a truly virtuous life. And the next two things we need to consider are issues of translation, and they fit in to that other context. We saw earlier that mistranslation can lead to amusement. We can all have a laugh at it. But it can also lead to problems, possibly children running by the swimming pool, and so we're going to take a look at two important Greek words and try to think about them in a slightly different way. The first is a Greek word called makarios, which in most translations is translated as the word blessed. 
But is this correct? Or could we perhaps find a better translation and therefore point to a better reading of the text? And as Andy will share with us next week, thinking about the Beatitudes, the blessed sayings. Now, when we think of blessing, we can quite often think of, uh, especially nowadays, we can think of hashtag blessed. We can think of things as uh, favor gifted to us from God. We think of good things happening to us. We think of it indicating a divine action or intervention. But if we were to instead translate it as flourishing, Instead, we have a statement that is actually a declared observation about a way of being in the world. It's not something that happens to us. It's something that we are. And this tracks across both the Greek and Jewish understandings of the world word outside of the New Testament, and especially the equivalent in Hebrew. So when we think of blessing, it's not something that happens to us. It's not God imparting something to us. Instead of saying blessing, perhaps I should say makarios. It's not something that happens to us. It's Jesus painting a picture for us of what it means to live a life in the state of true God-centered human flourishing. What some might refer to as the good life. It's a life that is content. It is a life that is satisfying. The Greeks might say it's a life that is virtuous. In modern language, perhaps Jesus is trying to communicate what true well-being looks like. So when we read those statements, we perhaps need to rethink our language. If blessing is something that is done to someone, what we have here is a description of what someone is. We're not looking at a set of instructions. We're not looking at Jesus saying, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be blessed. Instead, we're being invited to consider what the best way to be is in the world. How do we be and how do we pursue that? If we think of Psalm 1, it says, the one who walks in the way of the wicked, but instead delights in the law of the Lord, will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. That's a statement about being. When a tree is planted by streams of water, it receives sustenance. At the beginning of Psalm 1, it talks about the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And it's not trying to say, if you read your Bible, God will bless you. If you read your Bible, good things will happen to you. Instead, it's saying that if you read your Bible, you will live the way that God intended. And that will be your best life. You will learn what it means to be content. So when we're thinking about discipleship, being a disciple starts with understanding what it means to be truly human. And then from that, what we do will be right. We can, of course, do what is right without being, but that's not truly God's intention for us. 
In fact, that goes back to the, the virtue tradition where it talks about how our emotions and our reason have to be aligned. We can do what is right without wanting to. We can do what is right without being content about it. God wants for us to do what is right because it comes out of who we are in him. When it comes to this, I think about the, uh, the, the bits in the Gospels where it talks about those who did miraculous things in Jesus' name, who went out there at the end. It says they come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. And Jesus goes, but I didn't know you. Those people did what was right, but they did not know God. They did not know what it meant to be a person of God. So specifically in Matthew, we are not given instructions of what to do to enjoy God's favor. Rather, we are given proclamations of a state of being. Also, it's important to know that makarios is not about entrance requirements. It's not saying that you have to do this to get in. Jesus isn't saying you have to be poor in spirit in order to get in. It's also not something that happens to us when everything's finished. Whilst there is an element that actually at the end of it all will experience that kind of true humanity, that true flourishing in its fullness. It doesn't exclude us from experiencing it now in some way. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation, inviting us to live in the best way possible now in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for all of creation. We are to live it out now in anticipation of what is to come. We are to be people who bring about something of God's kingdom in the here and now in anticipation of God's full kingdom in eternity. And that ending helps us to think about our next term. So Alex read out for us Matthew 5, 48. And the Greek word is teleos. And in that verse, it is translated as perfect. It says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that seems like a really high standard, something really difficult to achieve. How are we to be perfect in the same way that God is perfect? Seems like quite a heavy burden to bear to me. However, this would have communicated something different to the Greeks and Jews who were reading this at the time. Looking at the Jewish usage, wholeness might be a better word for it, or perhaps completeness. Be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. Be complete as your heavenly Father is complete. Can offer up a sense of holiness or of a singularity of devotion to God, being so focused on God and His will. 
And in Greek philosophy, it's the one who is whole and who is complete, who lives a flourishing life. Being virtuous, being truly human, needs our whole being, not just a part of it. It's a bit like if you're trying to, uh, to lose weight. You might have heard that you can't spot target fat. You can't just decide which part of your body you want to lose a bit of fat from. You have to change everything. It's your whole body that needs to change. It's your diet and your exercise regime. So if we're thinking about that passage in Matthew, that verse, we're thinking about wholeness. Then we see that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be one who is holy and wholeheartedly oriented towards God, which results in a flourishing life. And this is different to the holiness that is defined by the Pharisees, which was all about doing the right things externally. Some other people who thought that if your external actions were correct, then you would be in the right place with God. But if it doesn't line up with what's inside, then it's not right. And actually, this is Jesus getting to the heart of the law. When Jesus says that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Part of that is Jesus talking about how your inner person needs to match those outward actions for it to be true righteousness. Jesus doesn't attack the Pharisees and call them hypocrites because, for example, they preach marital faithfulness and yet are serial adulterers, even though that is hypocrisy. He attacks them because their hearts and their actions are not aligned. Perhaps they give to the poor, but in their heart they look down on the poor and think of them as less than, as lazy or unworthy. Perhaps they give to the poor out of a sense of duty rather than love. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling us to whole person righteousness. He's calling us to build a firm foundation of being totally committed to and oriented towards God. When we begin to understand what it means to be truly human, to be, out of that place, good things will flow. Good actions will flow from being wholeheartedly devoted to God. And it's in this state of being that we live out God's kingdom designs by being the people that he called us to be. We don't want to be wolves in sheep's clothing or trees that bear bad fruit. We want to be like the wise builder who builds his house on rock with good, deep, strong foundations. And by doing this, we begin to live out the promise of eternity, of God's kingdom in the here and now. So as we go through this sermon series and think about what it means to be God's people and to live in a way 
that brings his kingdom come, his will be done. We're going to be encouraging each other to think about how living with God is the best way to live and how we show that to those around us who don't know Jesus. We're going to think about how lives that are flourishing, that are whole and complete, will bring about change in the world around us that will help the kingdom to break through, that will be attractive to others and will draw them into God's loving embrace. And I brought with me this morning three books um, that all kind of deal with the, the Sermon on the Mount in different ways. The first one is a book called The Divine Conspiracy uh, by Dallas Willard. And that talks about how the kingdom of God isn't just something that we look forward to in the future, but it's something that we can live out now. And that's a really, they are quite, quite chunky books, um, but it's a really accessible book um, about how to be a disciple of Jesus. The next one is uh, The Sermon on the Mount by um, a pastor called R.T. Kendall. And this kind of goes verse by verse through The Sermon on the Mount. Um, and looks at it in, in more detail. And then finally, uh, this last one is a book called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And this is a little bit more academic, I have to admit, um, but it's a, a really good look at kind of what I've talked about today and then linking it through uh, into The Sermon on the Mount. And I'm happy, um, I'm going to be using this one particularly, but I am happy for people to borrow them from me. Um, so if you want to, to read more around this, then uh, either you can get the books for yourself or come and see me and I will let you borrow one of them. But let me pray. Father God, thank you that you have created us and that you love us. Thank you that you want us to live in the best possible way. Thank you that your design and your purpose for us is to live in relationship with you, in relationship with each other. That you want us to have completeness, wholeness, peace that you want our lives to have meaning and purpose and that you want us to flourish. You don't want us to live lives of suffering. I pray, Lord, that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, as we listen to your teachings through your Son, that you will transform us, that our hearts will be drawn into alignment with yours. And that by your spirit, you would do a work within us, that you would transform us. And that you would enable and help us to live out your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.